Hey guys, welcome back. Hey, you know what's happening this week? We have Thanksgiving happening this week. So I thought this would be a great time to talk about pancreatitis. And I always think that we know a lot about pancreatitis. We see it so often, right? But um, there's actually probably some things that you didn't know about pancreatitis. So let's uh, jump in real quick. Let's first talk about the anatomy of the pancreas. When you think about the dog's abdomen, you have your stomach on the left-hand side up towards the ribs, and then the stomach goes into the small intestines. It goes towards the right side into the small intestines where the small intestines start on the right side. That first portion of the small intestines is called the duodenum, and that's actually where the pancreas lives. So it goes along kind of the parallel to the, to the bottom of your rib cage, and then it drops down on the right side of the body and loops around a little bit towards the left, but mostly towards the underneath the rib cage and kind of on the right hand side. And it's this little tiny pinkish organ that lives there. And it has a little tube that goes from the pancreas into the small intestine, so into the duodenum, where it pushes out a lot of enzymes that help break down fat. It breaks down fat, starches, and sugars. The pancreas actually does lots of other things as well, but we'll talk about those in other podcasts. Really, I'm just kind of focusing on what it does for the digestive system. So it helps us break down those three things. Next, we're gonna talk about who gets pancreatitis. Any dog or cat can get pancreatitis, no matter they're purebred, mixed breed, doesn't matter. But there are some, some breeds that are more common to get pancreatitis. And that's usually in Yorkies, uh, Cocker Spaniels, Dachshunds, Poodles, and um, also Miniature Schnauzers. Miniature Schnauzers we'll talk a little bit more later because they're really interesting. But those are kind of the ones we just see more commonly. Like think about even the ones that come into the clinic. You're commonly going to see a lot of Yorkies that come in with pancreatitis. And you're going to see a lot of like littler dogs like Pomeranians and stuff. But that doesn't mean it's just them. Like any dog or any cat can have pancreatitis. Now, how do they get pancreatitis? So the most common way is actually just going to be a dietary thing. So usually you're going to have somebody who feeds them something that they're not supposed to get or has fed them something that's just really fatty or really greasy or really spicy. And typically I usually ask the owners have they been feeding anything new recently it's like any new diets because sometimes let's say they'll switch from a really high quality diet to like Caesars it has a lot of fat in it or Rachel Ray's that has a lot of fat in it and those are delicious they're gonna get their dog to eat more because they think it's amazing because it's like you eating McDonald's every single day you know you're gonna think it's delicious but your pancreas and your body is not gonna like it the second thing is usually that people will have given them more treats than normal or a new treat that they hadn't gotten before. Um, a really common thing is that I see a lot of people who, who give like um, the pepperoni sticks, something that the dog hadn't had before and then just suddenly they start feeding them this really high fat treat, which is great in small amounts, especially if like training type situations because you wanna be able to get that dog to you know, listen to what you want, but at the same time, just keep feeding them like giant sticks of it, like 15 of them in a day is going to cause a pancreatitis. But I'd say the most common thing that I actually see is that somebody's feeding them people food. Now, 
most of the time, you know, you have dogs who or cats who they eat people food all the time and they may not get pancreatitis during those situations, but they eventually will. So let's say, you know, around Thanksgiving time here, the uncle comes over and starts feeding the dog table scraps under the table. That's a really common thing to have happened and the owner doesn't know. Or maybe the owner typically gives, you know, the cat a lick of their ice cream bowl after they're done eating every single day after dessert. And that can also cause a pancreatitis. There's a lot of fat that's in, in milk that the cats aren't actually usually supposed to get. And, you know, with our, our owners, they feel like they're doing something really nice for their pet. They love their pet so much, they want to be able to give them uh, something special and to like share their their um, treats with them or share their meals with them but you know we have to just talk about other ways that they can do that instead and we'll talk about that later as well but if it's not due to one of those things there are lots of other risk factors as well so tons and tons and tons of things can cause pancreatitis pancreatitis in and of itself is just inflammation of the pancreas so pancreatitis, the itis portion, is the inflammation. So just inflammation of the pancreas. So that can be from those three things that we just talked about, or it can be from a foreign body. So like some foreign bodies get stuck between the stomach and the small intestines, and that pushes right on the pancreas, which really upsets the pancreas and causes that pancreatitis. You have diabetes and um, Cushing's disease that can also cause a pancreatitis, and then some weird things like um, severe blunt traumas. So think about those dogs that get hit by a car. Even though it's kind of tucked up under their ribs, even just that blunt trauma just like to the rib area can cause a pancreatitis. Or animals that fall from high places, it's called a sky rise syndrome. And that's where cats like fall off of their, like the balconies up high. Or same thing with the dogs that fall off the balconies really high. When they hit the ground, it actually can cause that pancreatitis to occur as well because of that blunt trauma. Um, other weird things are going to be like infectious diseases. So there are, it's been reported in like Babesia and Leishmania, which is found in dogs. And then in cats, it's found in Toxoplasma gondii, which is a parasite. And they can also be found in things like FIP, um, but also in general, just not just in specifically in dogs or cats. Like it can also happen when you have a lot of free abdominal fluid in the, in the abdomen. And there's lots of things that can cause that. I mean, there's just so many things that can cause it. The other weird one is that they think that sometimes phenobarbital could potentially cause it. And really that's, we're kind of extrapolating that because it's been found in human medicine, but we haven't really seen it in, in veterinary medicine. And I can tell you, I have not seen any dogs have pancreatitis just from having um, phenobarbital. And there's lots of other drugs that can cause it as well in human medicine, but just ones that we don't typically use very much in veterinary medicine. But again, I, I personally have not seen that in, in our dogs who are taking phenobarbital. Now, how does that pancreatitis actually occur? So usually we'll have that fatty meal like we talked about, and this isn't like an instantaneous, we'll have like a piece of steak for the dog and then suddenly just like in two minutes it has pancreatitis, right? Like 
like typically the the signalman we see is going to be that a let's say the owner fed that piece of steak and then two days later or so one or two days later they'll notice that the dog's vomiting it's having diarrhea it's not eating it just looks like it's painful like there's kind of the most common ones but it could be any mixture of those symptoms but usually they will have like the not wanting to eat at the very least now what happens is that like I said eat the dog eats the steak and then that really makes the pancreas inflamed that pancreas starts to swell and we release a lot of these enzymes that are supposed to be in there to help break down the fat and the sugars and the starches instead they're being released at the pancreas because there's not really a lot of stuff in there now that they're not eating and it's destroying the pancreas like it's almost like it's eating itself it's eating its own pancreas that's going to cause more inflammation it's going to cause pain it's going to cause bleeding of the pancreas and it also can cause like the fat around the pancreas to become necrotic or die off as well and that one's really bad when that happens but but most of the time you know, it's going to just cause a lot more swelling and more pain of that pancreas now when we get really bad symptoms is when those enzymes go to other places because it's not just it doesn't just stay just right there in the pancreas it can move to other places as well so all of those those inflammatory enzymes that are breaking things down when they shouldn't can go to other places and cause like um, really bad renal failure it can cause pulmonary failure so it can cause like respiratory issues it can cause myocarditis which if, if you guys had listened to the heart failure one is just an inflammation of the heart muscles um, or it can cause even DIC and we'll talk about DIC in another one but our, our acronym for that is death is coming uh, because this, it is not a good disease to have when that happens now that doesn't happen in most of the cases in 99% of our cases they do just fine but those are things that can potentially happen with pancreatitis next let's talk about what the owner sees at home versus what we see in the clinic so what the owner is going to see at home is that the pet is going to be vomiting like I said they're not wanting to eat uh, they might have some diarrhea and maybe they're just really lethargic as well they bring them in sometimes they've already tried something like a bland diet sometimes they haven't they just bring them in let's say there just happens to be an opening in general practice and Carol brings that pet in if you start to examine that pet they seem kind of dumpy they might seem like they're hunched over a little bit like almost like their back is arched and if you start pushing on them if you push right behind the ribs right in the beginning of the abdomen it's actually kind of painful for them because that's right where that pancreas lives and that's usually the most common thing that we're going to see on our exams is that they have a painful abdomen other than that like there's usually not a lot of other things we're going to see on our physical exam sometimes they'll have a fever just because of the fact that they have um, a lot of inflammation in their body in general but it's not because it's like an infection there's no there's no antibiotics or anything that's needed for this there's no actual infection it's just inflammation of that pancreas so carol's evaluated our pet and is now going to talk to one of our doctors dr smith let's say about this she describes the clinical signs vomiting diarrhea not wanting to eat she noticed that when she went to go pick up the pet that it was painful in its abdomen 
that's a great tool for us as a doctor to be able to start thinking, oh, I wonder if this dog has a pancreatitis or maybe has a foreign body or lots of other things that it could potentially have. But that's really good information to know because that's not necessarily something that I would do is to go pick up the pet. But I will start to like feel the abdomen. Maybe the pet doesn't show me as much pain when I'm feeling in that abdomen, but when you pick up the pet, uh, it shows more pain. So good thing for us to know. Now, with the diagnosis of this, there are a couple of things. We want to actually try to make sure that there's no other diagnosis besides just pancreatitis. Like I said, there's lots of lots and lots of other things that can cause a pancreatitis. So it may be that there's something else that then led to pancreatitis. So typically we're going to want to do blood work and x-rays. Now with x-rays, we're going to be looking for things like obvious foreign bodies. Um, we're probably going to be also be looking for any masses that are in the abdomen because masses can cause a pancreatitis as well. There are a couple things that you can see on an x-ray with pancreatitis. Um, sometimes you'll see in the upper left-hand corner where the pancreas lives, it seems kind of fuzzy. Now that's not like a really good di definitive diagnosis for that, right? You're like, well, the x-ray just looks fuzzy. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to do more tests, but that is one thing to look for. The other thing is sometimes you'll actually see gas just in that area. So if you think of like an upside down L in the upper left-hand corner of that x-ray, um, that's also kind of a good indicator that there's probably pancreatitis there is this black gas of like an upside down L shape. After that, it's going to be blood work. So it's not just going to be testing just for the pancreas. We're actually going to be testing for other things as well. So when we're doing our regular blood works so or our chemistry and our CBC, we're usually looking for other things. We're going to look for kidney problems, liver problems, uh, high white blood cells, lots of other things are going to be a possible indicator that there could be something else. Um, things like diabetes, we're going to look for the glucose. We're going to look to see if their liver enzymes are elevated and this might be a Cushing's disease. And then the other test that we're going to want to run in-house is going to be either a CPL, canine pancreatic lipase test, which is done um, in-house on the machines, or an FPL, which is going to be the feline pancreatic lipase test. And what the lipase is, is it's just one indicator that the pancreas is upset. It becomes really high when there's inflammation of the pancreas. It's nice because we can do that test in-house and get a pretty quick answer back, like within 30 minutes or so, to know if that pet has a pancreatitis as well as looking for those other things that could potentially be occurring. The last diagnostic that we can use in-house is going to be an ultrasound. Ultrasound's a little bit harder because you have to look for just inflammation in the area of that pancreas. We're also looking for other things too, like I'm typically looking to see if there's a lot of calcification of the pancreas, so it'll be really, really white, really bright. Um, or I'm looking for just inflammation around the area of the pancreas because the pancreas is really hard to find. Um, and I'm also looking to see like other things like is there foreign bodies and stuff in there as well. But typically like we can use all of those tools in conjunction with each other to try to determine if this is pancreatitis and is there something else besides pancreatitis. Is pancreatitis the actually the secondary problem, not the first problem? 
There are tests that you can send out as well. When we do our in-house one, it just tells us either abnormal or normal. Abnormal is going to mean there's a pancreatitis or at least the pancreatic enzymes are elevated. And normal usually is able to help us rule out it's probably not going to be a pancreatitis. Versus the one we send out is going to be called a pancreatic lipase immunoreactivity, which is also known as a SPEC-CPL or SPEC-FPL, whichever one you're sending out for dog or cat. And this one doesn't say normal or abnormal. This actually gives you a very specific number. This test is really good for animals who have really chronic pancreatitis. It's not really going to help you with the acute pancreatitis because, I mean, it, it could be elevated to any number. It doesn't really matter for those. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's more or less what we're going to do is going to change based on that number. Uh, really, it's just telling us whether really the pet has a pancreatitis or doesn't have a pancreatitis. But like I said, in chronic cases, we can use that because it can help us guide whether the um, treatment that we're doing is working or not. Sometimes we're going to give certain treatments and maybe they don't work. We should recheck those that uh, spec CPL and see that the number is just the same or higher. And then we're going to change the treatment if that's the case. But we're going to talk mostly about our acute pancreatitis for today. Now, do you want to know how you get a definitive diagnosis for pancreatitis? Uh, this like makes me a little nauseous even thinking about it. Is you actually do a needle aspirate of the pancreas. So you stick a needle into the pancreas. But there's like so many things that could go wrong with that. Like you have to find the pancreas on an ultrasound, which is really tiny. And then you have to stick a pancreas that's already inflamed and already angry which is probably going to make it even more angry. Uh, it's just not something we do. It's not something people generally do, but it is something that you can do to get it like a definitive diagnosis for it. I just don't recommend it though. All right, so Carol has done all of her diagnostics for Dr. Smith, and now what is the treatment going to be? Well, that depends. In most cases, we can actually treat these pets as like an outpatient basis, so it's typically going to mean that we're going to give something to help stop that vomiting. So usually serenia or a serenia injection. Uh, serenia actually, it makes the brain, like it just basically tricks the brain into thinking it's not nauseous. So we give that injection and when you do that, uh, you want to make sure you do not give it in the bubble of sub-Q fluids if they ask for sub-Q fluids as well. Because it takes too long for those sub-Q fluids to be able to to absorb like it can take up to 24 hours and if you put the serenia in that bubble that means that's 24 hours before that serenia is actually working so we don't want to put it in the bubble it's got to go on another area besides the bubble of sub-Q fluids but like I said you want to give the serenia if we don't have serenia which uh, it's terrible when we don't but you can also give Zofran or it's also called Ondansetron as well so you can give that too it doesn't last as long though, and it stings when you give it sub-Q, so it's like not the best one. It's not going to be the number one we go to. It's going to be Serenia is the number one we're going to go to. The owners also need to know that it's going to last about 24 hours for that Serenia. If they vomit in that 24-hour period, then something is really wrong. Either there's, we missed something on our x-ray, we couldn't see it because it just didn't, it just didn't show um, that a certain gas pattern on our x-rays. Or maybe the pet's sicker than what we think it's, it really is. 
And that's a good indication that that pet needs to come back. So when Carol goes to check them out, that is something that we need to talk about is, you know, we gave this injection of Serenia. It lasts for 24 hours. If you see any vomiting in the next 24 hours, you need to bring that pet back and be seen on emergency because there's something is not right if that's the case. The next thing is we want to give them some sort of appetite stimulant. So we talked about how those little pancreatic enzymes break down the pancreas because there's no food in there right now and it's going to destroy the pancreas. So actually the best thing for pancreatitis is to get that pet to eat because if there's food in there, it will digest the food. Those enzymes want to digest the food, but if there's no food in there, it's just going to digest its own pancreas. So we want to put food into that intestines. We need to be able to feed it. So we want to give them an appetite stimulant. So for dogs, it's usually going to be Entice. For cats, we have a, a couple of things. So we can use Allura, you can use Entice, or you can use Mirtazapine. All of those are going to be a good option for cats. You know, Allura is specifically for cats versus Entice is actually for dogs, but we always use Entice as well for you know some of our pets. But we can, but we can use also mirtazapine. So mirtazapine comes in a pill, or it comes in a um, topical that the that the owner can put on the cat's ear, and that's really nice for some of those cats that you just you cannot get medication into. But I do typically tell people to wear gloves when they do it, or to use like a um, tongue depressor or some sort of like just something that they can put it on the ear. So they're not touching it themselves. Otherwise, they're going to end up really hungry after they keep putting this on their pet's ear. And the next best thing for this pet is going to be a bland diet. So what is a bland diet? Typically, that's going to be depending on really whether they want to cook or not. But if they're willing to cook, it's usually going to be a chicken breast, no skin, no bones, no seasoning, no butter, no salt, no oil, nothing. Very bland and they want to boil it, not bake it, because baking it actually still sits in a lot of its fat. We want that fat to be cooked off. So boiling it is going to be the best thing for it. With the rice, it could be white rice, brown rice, doesn't matter. Again, just very bland. So no, no seasoning, no oil, no butter, nothing on it. If the owner doesn't want to cook or they just want to cook minimal stuff, they can go get the canned chicken. So the same thing that we use in the clinic just a can of chicken in water. Make sure it's not in oil. They got to get the one that's in water. It's usually found over in the tuna section. And the same thing with rice, white rice, brown rice, doesn't matter which one. And the most common question you're going to get is, how much food should I feed them with this chicken and rice diet? Uh, my take on it is I usually tell them however much they were feeding before, they should feed that much of chicken and rice. So let's say you're feeding matzah, my, my lab, she'll get roughly a cup in the morning and the cup in the evening of her own dog food. So if I was to, to use that same amount for the chicken and rice, I'd give half a cup of chicken, half a cup of rice twice a day. So that would equal her whole cup twice a day. And that's just a general rule. And we're only doing this for a couple of days. It's going to be for typically three to five days until they're eating well and ideally their diarrhea is minimal. And if you noticed, I didn't talk about metronidazole first because the diet was the more important thing. 
because sometimes we don't give metronidazole or probiotics at all and the diet is going to be enough to be able to help clear up that diarrhea. This can even work for a lot of those people who are calling in. So if somebody calls in and talks to April about this, you know, if they say, what can I do at home? A bland diet. A bland diet is going to be great for pancreatitis. It's going to have all of those things that are going to help the pancreas stop producing all of these enzymes. So definitely you can talk about a bland diet. Now let's say the owner does not want to cook. Uh, then the next best thing is going to be a prescription diet. So this is usually going to be Hill's ID or it's going to be the Royal Canin gastrointestinal diets. We do intermittently have like the little kits that we can send home. I think they're called like the GI kits if I remember correctly. Uh, that has like a little bag of food and some cans of food in it as well. But I mean, I know that they're kind of hard to come by right now, but we, we do have them occasionally. Now let's say they're having really bloody diarrhea or it's just constant nonstop diarrhea. Then sometimes we will send home metronidazole. So why am I saying metronidazole not always? So the reason why is because metronidazole is an antibiotic. It does good things and bad things. So antibiotics kill off bacteria. Ideally, we want the bad bacteria killed off and not the good bacteria, but you cannot guarantee which bacteria is going to get killed off with antibiotics. You're going to have bad bacteria and good bacteria that's killed off. So ideally, if we want to, to save our good bacteria and kill off the bad bacteria, the best way to do that is actually just to help the good bacteria overgrow the bad bacteria. We do that by giving a bland diet. You can also do it by giving a probiotic as well. A probiotic is actually like giving good nutrients to those good bacteria that we want to keep growing. So that will overgrow the bad bacteria. But like I said, if there's really bloody diarrhea or it's pretty constant, then a lot of times we will give metronidazole to go home because we want to help stop that diarrhea and stop those ongoing losses that that pet is having. And then some people will also send home pain medication as well. I have had a pancreatitis. It is painful. So I, I sympathize with them. And so sometimes I will send home pain medication, especially if, you know, if I've palpated that there was pain on that abdominal palpation, then I, I will send them home with some pain medication. All right. So what is the prognosis now for pancreatitis? In general, prognosis is great. Usually they do just fine after a couple of days of medication and they're pretty much ready to be transitioned back over to their normal food again. Now, when does it become a bad prognosis? Well, in 90% of our patients, they do great. Like I said, no problems. The problems arise when we have other things that occur. So let's say the pancreatitis got so bad because all of those enzymes went to other places. It can cause organ failure. Um, it can cause them to become acidotic, so their blood becomes really acidic rather than very neutral like it should be. It can also cause them to have things like DIC. Um, like I said, death is coming, not good. And like I alluded to in the beginning, you also have certain breeds that could have really bad problems from this. So if we have a miniature schnauzer, um, not all miniature schnauzers have this, but unfortunately there are quite a lot of them that do. They can have something called hyperlipidemia and that means that they have really high triglycerides and really high cholesterol in their body. So like when you go to the doctor and they draw blood on you, like one of the things that they're looking for is your triglycerides. 
Those are basically lipids or just fat. They just want to know if there's a lot of fat in the bloodstream, which miniature schnauzers just happen to get. And this can be a hereditary thing. Um, it also can be induced from like certain drugs. So like steroids can cause it uh, or other problems can cause it. So if they have diabetes on top of that, that can also cause hyperlipidemia, which will then cause the pancreatitis. So if you notice those steps there, that means that if we just treat pancreatitis, we're not going to treat the problem. We actually got to treat the diabetes to be able to treat the hyperlipidemia to be able to treat the pancreatitis, which is again why it's important to do things like blood work and x-rays to look for those other problems that might have occurred. Sorry, that was my little soapbox. Now back to hyperlipidemia. So with the hyperlipidemia, that really complicates things. They actually do not do well when they have pancreatitis and hyperlipidemia. Those are usually the most fatal out of all of them. And that hyperlipidemia is not going to show any clinical signs besides like us finding it on blood work or when we draw blood, um, when Jordan goes to run that or when Latoya goes to run that, you're going to notice sometimes that that serum is very white rather than that nice clear or, or slightly yellowish color that we end up getting. And that's not good. Like I said, that's, that's not a good prognosis because we worry that that pet is not going to make it through that. So Dr. Smith has diagnosed our pancreatitis. Carol's done the treatments. She's done the serenia, uh, maybe some sub-Q fluids under the skin, which she did not put the serenia into. Uh, maybe we did an appetite stimulant and we're going to send that pet home. Now, there are cases where we don't send that pet home. That's going to be if those pets were really bad, where they might be really dehydrated on their, their blood work, or they might have one of those other problems that we were talking about. And those are typically the ones that are going to be hospitalized. When they're hospitalized, they're put on IV fluids. They are usually given all of those medications as injectables rather than as trying to give them by mouth. And sometimes we'll have a feeding tube placed. In dogs, it's typically typically going to be from the nose into the stomach because that's called a nasogastric tube, so nose to stomach tube. Uh, in cats, you can do a nasogastric tube, but it's a little bit hard to get the food through it, so I don't do it as often. Um, like there was a cat who was there this last week. I did it on that one because the cat like was just eating less than 24 hours before, so I wasn't terribly concerned that it wasn't going to eat but also you can also also put in what's called an esophageal tube so it means it goes from the side of the neck into the esophagus or the food pipe down into the stomach so it's an esophageal tube that one's more invasive for sure you actually have to cut into the neck and cut into the esophagus to put it in but it's way easier to get food into them and the owner can take the pet home with an esophageal tube in Versus the nasogastric tube, there's a lot more risks to them going home with it because if they they go to vomit it up, it will um, actually potentially cause an aspiration pneumonia. So we try really hard not to send them home with that. Really, it's going to be sending them home with an esophageal tube if we have to. But that's going to get that food into them so that we can ideally help the pancreas, just like we talked about before, not break down itself with all those enzymes that it's producing. Right, so now after it's been hospitalized, it's doing well, it's eating, hopefully not vomiting, it will probably still be going home with diarrhea. 
So some of the things that whoever's checking them out, so let's say Sean, our technician Sean, is getting them checked out. He's going to want to talk about a couple of things. One, we're going to talk about the importance of that bland diet. We don't want them going home and just feeding anything to be able to get them to eat. We want to do that bland diet. Two, the next big thing is talking to them about the, the vomiting. The, the pet should not be vomiting because we gave that injection of Serenia. And if it hasn't been vomiting in the hospital, then it should not be vomiting when it goes back home. The third big thing is that it's probably still going to have diarrhea when it goes home. So he should be talking about the fact that, you know, it might have some diarrhea or loose stool for the next couple of days, but the bland diet should help with that. And then also one important thing for owners to know is that once that diarrhea starts to clear up, they might even have like about three days or so of what they see as constipation. But it's actually just the body reabsorbing all the water. So if they see that the dog has not gone to the bathroom in three days, it's not going to be a huge deal. They should anticipate that that is going to happen. All right, and that is pancreatitis. So if you have any questions, let me know. Um, so I'm going to tell you my, my story for pancreatitis now. Uh, not for me personally getting pancreatitis, but my dog who got pancreatitis. So when I first met my wife, she had two little rat terriers. One of them was like eight pounds and this dog would eat anything. Like literally like you dropped a piece of lettuce, she'd eat it. You drop a strawberry, she'd eat it. Cucumber, she'd eat it. Doesn't matter what it was, she would eat it. And so she was so tiny that she could fit into the cabinets even though we put baby locks on all the cabinets. When she was skinny enough because we had, when I came along, I was like, we gotta lose some weight. So we got her down in her weight from like, I think she was like eight pounds to 10 pounds. Doesn't seem like a lot, but when they're tiny, like that's a lot. So we'd gotten her down to a really good weight, but that meant that she could now fit through those cabinet doors. Like she would open it by herself and we didn't know it and she'd fit through the cabinet doors. So one day I come home and I hear like a crunching sound in the kitchen I was like, what the heck is that? Like, this is like, I also had just been working night shift as a technician. So I'd gotten off at like, I think I was doing swing shift that day. So I'd gotten off at like 4 a.m. or something like that. Um, but I, you know, I go home, go in the kitchen. I hear this just crunching, just like constant crunching. And I was like, is there a rat in here? What is happening? So I like follow the sound and open up the cabinet and there's tiny little Bessie, eight pounds, no longer tiny. She looks like a giant freaking tick. Like just her whole belly is is just distended. She's like arched over so that that way she could just make room for more food. And she's just still eating. She's just constantly eating. So I get her out of there. I like see how much is left because actually it was a full bag and she was eight pounds and she had eaten like six pounds of food at that point. So I took her to the clinic that was closest to me, which just I ended up working at later on, but didn't know them at that time. But I took her to the place closest to me and I was like, look, I'm a technician. I just needed to get her um, to do emesis. And they're like, well, we want to do an x-ray to see like where things are. I said, sure, that's fine. They take an x-ray, like literally her stomach to her, from her intestines to her colon is just filled with food, just tons and tons of food. I was like, oh man, because when you make them vomit, you can only make them vomit what's in their stomach. 
after it passes the stomach and goes into the small intestines, that's it. It, it cannot come out through the through this the mouth. So we could only make her vomit was what was in her stomach. So they make her vomit. I take her home. I put her on a bland diet, but she still got pancreatitis from it because my God, she eats so much freaking food. Of course, she got pancreatitis. And my wife was really concerned because she was having um, some constipation from it as well because it was so dry and she didn't have enough access to water at that time. So it was just like really dry stool. So my wife had brought home like a uh, bag of fluids and was like giving her enemas at home to try to get her to pass some of that stool. And then just trying to get that dog to eat any medication was terrible unless I'd give it to her in like some sort of piece of cheese or something, which of course I don't want to do because that's going to make her pancreatitis worse. Oh, it was terrible. But man, little eight pound dog then became, I think after we had weighed her, she was like 12 pounds after that because she had eaten so much food. That was super embarrassing walking into the vet clinic. That wasn't my vet clinic and I'm like, my dog just ate a whole bag of food. Like, how did she do that? She's so tiny. Anyways, she did fine. Um, she did end up having to be hospitalized, though, because her pancreatitis got so bad that it did cause her to have a hypoalbuminemia, so low albumin, which is really important for keeping fluids inside the vasculature. And so we had to hospitalize her. She had to get a plasma transfusion. It was terrible. But she came home after, I'd say three three days in the hospital and she did fine after that and don't worry she went on to eat lots more stuff after that as well all right thanks again guys let me know if you have any questions and have a great thanksgiving